0: New York. This is Democracy Now.
1: So the first Thanksgiving story is um, begins with the Pequot Massacre um, by members of the um, Massachusetts Bay um, Colony, um, which really marks, sort of, in my opinion, marks sort of the, the mythology of the United States as a, a settler colonial country founded um, on sort of genocide um, to create, ironically, peace.
0: Our history is the future. As the nation marks Thanksgiving, we speak to the indigenous scholar and activist Nick Estes. Then, the myth of normal, trauma, illness and healing in a toxic culture. We'll talk to acclaimed Canadian physician Gabor Mate.
2: When you isolate people, atomize them, you make them feel guilty or weak for their illness and tell them to get over their trauma. You're just shaming them more, you're isolating them more, and you're intentioning them more in the traumatic imprint. What people need is community, contact, compassion, safety.
0: All that and more, coming up. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In this special broadcast, we begin the show with the indigenous scholar and activist, Nick Estes. He's co founder of the indigenous resistance group, The Red Nation, and a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe. His books include Our History is the Future, which tells the history of indigenous resistance over two centuries, offering a roadmap for collective liberation and a guide to fighting life-threatening climate change. Estes centers this history in the historic fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock. I asked him to talk about the two Thanksgiving stories he writes about at the beginning
1: of his book. So the first Thanksgiving story is uh, begins with the Pequot Massacre um, by members of the uh, Massachusetts Bay um, Colony, Um, which really marks sort of, in my opinion, marks sort of the the mythology of the United States as uh, a a settler colonial country founded um, on sort of genocide um, to create, ironically, peace. Um, And then I begin with another story of a prayer march that we led in the Bismarck Mall in Bismarck, North Dakota, Um, to kind of bring attention to the Standing Rock struggle um, during a a Black Friday um, shopping event, um, which was met by um, police uh, armed with AR-15s, who then began punching and kicking uh, water protectors who were holding a prayer in the um, Bismarck Mall. And I I thought it was a really kind of um, jarring sort of um, contrast between um, you know, the, the past and the present to say that while there are sort of differences um, between the, the massacre of Pequots in, um, in, in Massachusetts um, to the contemporary sort of fight against an oil pipeline, um, nonetheless, you know, Bismarck, um, North Dakota is a 90 is percent a um, white uh, community um, that originally the Dakota Access Pipeline was supposed to go upriver from, but then was rerouted downriver um, to disproportionately affect the uh, Standing Rock Sioux tribe. And disproportionate is, is the language that the Army Corps of Engineers use, as if there's ever a proportionate risk to environmental um, uh, issues and, and um, water contamination. Um, so at this particular moment, um, there weren't any actions that were um, happening in the camps, and it was largely at a standstill. And uh, I think at, at that Thanksgiving weekend, there was an un-Thanksgiving um, feast that was held in the in the camps, and it was actually the, the highest point um, of the camps themselves uh, in the sense that there were the most sort of um, water protectors had showed up. So I thought it was a good kind of... Um, contrast to show that this history, you know, is a continuing history of of genocide, um, of settler colonialism, and basically the the founding myths of this country.
0: Your book's last words are, we're challenged not just to imagine, but to demand the emancipation uh, of Earth from capital. For the Earth to live, capitalism must die. Explain.
1: So that line is part of you know this longer section on liberation, and I think when we think about um, climate change, oftentimes the the question of climate change really centers on market driven solutions such as um, you know green capitalism, and how do we um, create markets um, that sort of incentivize transition to uh, sustainable economies right and I think really what we're, we're, we're kind of like beating around the bushes is that it's the system of capitalism that led us into this economic crisis to begin with. It's the the uh, sort of designation of certain populations in certain territories as disposable um, that has led us into um, our current epoch of, of global climate change. And so when we talk about who's going to bear the most burden um, when we transition you know, out of the carbon economy um it, it, mo- it most likely is going to be um those populations that have historically been colonized you know and you know what's happening in southeast Um, Africa is a perfect example uh, of why we need to transition uh, away from not just um, the carbon economy, but capitalist economies in general. Because if we look at the history of how Africa has been a resource colony for Europe and for North America, we can look internally in the United States and understand that indigenous nations continue to serve as resource colonies for the United States, whether it's the Navajo Nation, um, where I'm living right now, that is producing uh, oil and coal. Um, to uh, generate um, electricity for the Southwest region, or whether it's um, the Fort Berthold uh, Reservation up in North Dakota that is, you know, um, the ground zero for um, oil and gas um, Development in the Bakken region um, we have to understand that indigenous nations have largely been turned into resource colonies uh, and sites of sacrifice for um, not just the United States but for the oil and gas industry and so we need to not just think beyond um, climate change and, and putting um, carbon into the atmosphere but we actually need to think about the system the social system right that created those conditions in the first in the first place and so capitalism is fundamentally a social relation it 's a, po- a profit driven System, whereas indigenous sort of um, ways of relating is one about reciprocity um, and, and mutual sort of respect, um, not just with the human but also with the non-human world. And we're undergoing, you know, the sixth mass um, sixth massive extinction event, which is caused by not just climate change but is caused by um, capitalist sort of uh, systems and the 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 um, the profit driven sort of motive of Um, our current economic and social system.
0: Nick Estes, you focus on seven historical moments of resistance in your new book, Our History is the Future. Uh, You say they form a historical roadmap for collective liberation. How did you choose these histories? Just quickly take us through them.
1: Sure. So, I begin— um, at the camps. I begin in the present, you know, um, at Standing Rock. And then I go to the fur trade with um, the first U.S. invasion, um, which was uh, Lewis and Clark who came through, who trespassed through our territory and were stopped by um, our, our leadership. And then I go through um, the, the, the Indian wars of the 19th century and the Buffalo genocide. Um, and then I go into um, talking about the, um, the damming of the Missouri River in the mid 20th century and then looking at red power in the in the 1960s and the 1970s and how um, all of these indigenous people who were relocated because their lands were flooded um, by these dams eventually found themselves and created sort of the modern indigenous um, Movement known as Red Power, and then looking, going back and ending actually at Standing Rock in 1974 with the creation of the International Indian Treaty Council, which really coalesced. Um, these generations of of indigenous resistance, and took the um, treaties, the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, to the world um, and to the United Nations. And to do that, they looked to um, Palestinians, um, they looked to the South African anti-apartheid movement, who provided the mechanisms for recognition of of indigenous rights at the United Nations, and that all resulted um, over four decades in the touchstone document the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which was passed by the UN in 2007. And so, in many ways, when we look at Standing Rock and we look at—we go down Flag Row and we see the hundreds of tribal nation flags that were represented in 2016 and 2017, we also saw the Palestinian flag that was there, kind of hearkening back to that that um that's that international solidarity with uh, movements of the global south and specifically um our palestinian relatives who you know um today are still facing much like us are still facing the the brunt and the brutality of um settler colonialism whether it's the the you know the united states recogni- recognizing the annexation of the golan heights or whether it's you know here in in North America, and the continued dispossession of indigenous territory and rights, we can see that settler colonialism in in Israel or in palestine is an, is really an extension of settler colonialism in north america um, and so and then I end you know um, um, with uh, back at the camps and looking at how these camps really provided, you know, I actually look at a physical map that was handed out to um, um, water protectors who came to the camp. And on that map, there was, you know, where to find food, where to find um, the clinics, right, and where to find um, the security and the, all the camps that were represented at, the, um, at, at Standing Rock. Um, And to me, that provided, you know, a kind of interesting parallel to um, the world that surrounded the camps, which was 90, you know, some 92 different law enforcement jurisdictions. Um, You had the the North Dakota National Guard, the world of cops, the world of um, the militarized sort of police state. Um, And in the camps themselves, you had sort of the the primordial sort of beginnings of what a world premised on indigenous justice might look like. And in that world, you know, everyone got free food. There was a place for everyone, you know, um, the housing, you know, obviously was transient housing and teepees and things like that. But then also um, there was health clinics um, to provide health care, alternative forms of health care to everyone. And so if we look at that, it's housing, education, um, all for free, right? Uh, A strong sense of community. And for a short time, there was free education at the camps, Right. Those are things that most poor communities in the United States don't have access to, and especially reservation communities. But given the opportunity to create a new world um, in that camp centered on uh, indigenous justice and treaty rights, um, society organized itself according to need and not to profit. And so... Where there was, you know, the world of settlers, uh, settler colonialism that surrounded us, there was the world of indigenous justice um, that existed for a brief moment in time. And in that world, instead of doing to um, settler society what they did to us, genociding, removing, excluding, we, there's a capaciousness to indigenous resistance movements that welcomes in non-indigenous peoples into our struggle because that's our primary strength is one of relationality, one of making kin, right?
0: Nick Estes, indigenous scholar and activist, speaking in 2019. His books include Our History is the Future. He's co-founder of the indigenous resistance group The Red Nation and a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe. When we come back, Dr. Gabor Mate on The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture.
3: Snow Goonie from the boonies Not the type you see in movies Spelled the spirit living through me Since I was a puny dookie Nietzsche, Nietzsche, looky, looky How I get low when I boogie Don't mind me some goody-goodies I'm Nathan Bougie My wifey be the wolf And I'm the wolf that's from the sea And she no hind. It's More like Buffy, save me, come do your dance with me I dip, you dip, we dip No, it ain't blasphemy I sip, you sip, we sip with Nisi, cut. I stand and rock with all my suit without the boosts. Me and bro came out the womb. Nietzsche 1 and Nietzsche 2, we very indigenous people. Uh-huh. We some VIPs, I'm a blood thinker that Ulrich grease. Nietzsche, please, sing your song. This is my jam. Got my fam, going. going ham for the land, not the gram. Stay banana, it's who I am. We choose copper over gold. Praise the elders, I remember. So never turn your back on home. We them bougie natives. I got turquoise on my red We them bougie natives. Five rings up on my feet. We them bougie natives. Big hat with the bread. We them bougie natives. Got that custom made bleed. We them bougie natives. New city, new sweet grass, new safe. We them bougie natives. All my knowledge in my brain. We them bougie natives. New city, new sweet grass, new safe. We them bougie natives. You can holla at Monet. Hey oh hey, can't you tell them what the smoke shop is closed? Can you tell your boys dope? Man, I'm spinning like a maided, then I'm smudging cuz I'm broke again. Always running late, I hope the
0: This day. is Democracy Now, DemocracyNow.org, the Warren Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In this Democracy Now special, we turn now to Dr. Gabor Mate, the acclaimed Canadian physician and author. Just out with a new book, The Myth of Normal trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture. Dr. Mate has worked for decades in Vancouver as a family physician, palliative care director, addiction clinician, and observer of human health. In a moment, we'll speak to Dr. Gabor Mate. But first, I want to turn to a trailer of a documentary about his work titled The Wisdom of Trauma.
2: In the U.S., the richest society in history... Fully half of the citizens have a chronic disorder such as high blood pressure or diabetes. Anxiety amongst young people is growing rapidly. Asthma and autoimmune diseases are on the rise as are addictions. Depression is rising. Youth suicide is rising. All is not well.
1: I started heroin at 26. That's what really destroyed me. Just takes the pain away. It's easy
2: to want to escape reality completely instead of coping with it. And so the question is, can we be human beings in the midst of civilization? Because what we call civilization demands the denial of human needs.
0: Please welcome Dr.
2: Gabor Martin Every human being is a true, genuine, authentic self. And the trauma is that disconnection from it, and the healing is the reconnection with it. Why do we get disconnected? Because it's too painful to be ourselves.
3: So you sort of a bit like in The Matrix when Neo sees everything's made out of numbers. You look at people and you see all their trauma and damage. That's what I
2: see. So trauma is not the bad things that happen to you, but what happens inside you as a result of what happens to you. What do you want to tell me? What comes up right now? Shame. Thank you.
0: My father, he would spank us and take a belt
2: to us. Who did you speak to about your pain? Nobody. Yeah, that's the trauma. In other words, by the time you are five years old, you were completely alone. People are much more lonely and isolated than they used to be. Literally, it causes inflammation in the body and suppresses the immune system. You've been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Correct. In my view, people that develop cancer have a hard time expressing healthy anger.
3: Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. There were two
2: traumatized people fighting to govern a traumatized world. That's exactly what I'm saying. And these are the people that our society rewards with power. Our schools are full of kids with learning difficulties, mental health issues that are trauma-based. But the average teacher never gets a single lecture on trauma. We need trauma-informed medical care trauma-informed education if we had a trauma-informed society we'd have a society that looks much more compassionate you did you made a difference in my life thank you you for being in touch
0: I don't feel like I'm a bad person anymore hey how are you
2: I just want people to see the truth Solutions arise out of people when they confront themselves with the truth, when they're not afraid of the truth. I think the biggest thing that this whole healing journey has taught me is how to be human.
0: That's the trailer for the film The Wisdom of Trauma, featuring our guest, Dr. Gabor Mate. He's just written a new book with his son Daniel titled The Myth of Normal. Trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture. Democracy Now!'s Nermin Sheikh and I recently spoke to Gabor Mate. I began by asking him about the pandemic and the book's title, The Myth
2: of Normal. So the pandemic actually revealed to us how toxic our idea of normal has been, because it showed us the desperate need for human connection that we all have. But this is in a culture that has been isolating and atomizing individuals for a long time, where loneliness has been an epidemic for decades. It showed the noxious effect of racism and inequality because the people who had the um, greatest risk for being affected by COVID were those of uh, lower social class and of people of color. It, uh, the normal that we came from, in my perspective, was already a toxic normal. We don't want to go back to it, because my contention in this book is what we consider to be normal in this society is actually neither natural or healthy. And in fact, it's a cause of much human pathology, mental and physical, and actually People's pathologies, what we call abnormalities, whether it's mental or physical illness, are actually normal responses to what is an abnormal culture.
4: And Dr. Gabor Mate, you say uh, in the book, in fact, that there are no clear lines between normal and abnormal. Could you explain what you mean by that and how you understand the spectrum along which these things lie?
2: Well, the key here is trauma. Trauma. Uh, trauma is a psychological wound that people sustain. And I'm saying that in this society, most of us, because of the nature of the culture, the way we raise children, the way we have to relate to each other, the very values of a society are traumatizing for a lot of people so that it's false to say that some people are normal and others are abnormal. In fact, we're all on the spectrum of, of woundedness, which has great impact on how we relate to each other and on our health.
4: And, Dr. Mate, explain how you understand, as you say in the book, that uh, the term trauma has uh, uh, Greek origins, but that it's come to mean something quite different. I mean, in the Greek origin, it referred to a physical injury or a physical wound. Uh, But in uh, psychiatry, in the work of Freud and psychoanalysis, uh, in medical literature, generally now trauma is understood as a, a wound to the mind.
2: It's a wound to the psyche, to our emotional being, and to the soul, and trauma is not what happens to us. People, when they think of trauma, they think usually of catastrophic events like a tsunami or a war or parents dying or sexual or a physical, emotional abuse of a child. These events are traumatic, but they're not the trauma. The trauma is the psychic wound that we sustain, and our psychological traumas have lifelong impacts. And in my medical work, I found that psychological trauma, woundedness underlies much of what we call disease, whether autoimmune illness or cancer or the various mental health conditions. And in our society, psychological woundedness is very prevalent, and it's rather an illusion to believe some people are traumatized and others are not. I think there's a spectrum of trauma that crosses all layers and all segments of society. Naturally, it falls heavier on certain sections, uh, on on people of color, people with. Uh, genders that are not fully accepted by society, uh, people of economic inequality uh, who suffer more from inequality, but the traumatization is pretty general in our culture.
0: Gabor, I was wondering if you could take some time and talk about your own journey from trauma and how it shaped you as an infant and Nazi-occupied, hungry um, to where you are today and how that has influenced who you are.
2: Well, you know, the first chapter of the book opens with my arrival home to Vancouver, where I live, from a speaking trip and I'm feeling really good about myself because it was a good trip, my talk was well received, and I had a good flight home. And when I arrived back at the airport in Vancouver, I get a text from my wife saying, I haven't left home yet, do you still want me to come? And all of a sudden my mood switches, I become dark, I become angry, I become withdrawn, I become sullen. And when I get home, I barely even looking at her. Now, what actually happened here? All that happened was that my artist wife, typical of an artist, was in the middle of creative flow in her studio, and she forgot that her husband was arriving home at the airport. What was triggered in me, however, was the wound of a one-year-old infant who was abandoned by his mother in an effort to save my life, actually. But the meaning I made of it is that I wasn't lovable, that I wasn't wanted. And even 71 years later, when this woman, i her lying to be there for me doesn't show up. The woundedness of a one-year-old infant shows up. And that's what my friend Peter Levine calls the tyranny of the past. And so these early wounds, in my case, this sense of abandonment, could still show up seven decades later over a relatively trivial incident. And these early wounds of ours, well so that's one way that it showed up. It shows up in my relationship to my work. So I was a workaholic physician for many decades. Why was I a workaholic? Because the message I got as an infant under the Nazis was that the world didn't want me. Now if the world doesn't want you, one way to cope with it is to make yourself very important, become a helper, become a physician, because now they're gonna want you all the time. But that's very addictive because you keep trying to prove to yourself something you don't believe in the first place, which is that you're wanted. And so that the more people rewarded me with either financially or with their attention or their gratitude for my medical work, the more I needed it, the more I became dependent on it. So it shows up in so many ways. These early wounds show up in so many ways. It shows up in our relationships, in our marriages, in our in our relationship to our children, in our relationship to our work. It shows up in politics, as we've seen during COVID. So these early wounds in my life had had wide-ranging implications, and as they do in the lives of many people.
0: Now, you've intrigued us because you said at the time you thought your mother abandoned you, um, but you, of course, now understand she was doing it to save you. Can you explain what happened?
2: Sure. So I was 11 months of age, my mother was a 24-year-old Jewish woman living under the Nazi occupation under a viciously anti-Semitic fascist regime in December of 1944. And she found refuge in a safe home run by the Swiss Embassy, but there were 2,000 people living there in a home meant for 100 people. The sanitary conditions were terrible, food was very uncertain, She did, and I was very sick. And she didn't think I would live, so she went out into the street and gave me to a Christian woman, a complete stranger, and asked her to take me to some relatives who were living under relatively, relatively safer conditions. Her intention was simply to save my life, and she did. But as an 11 month old, I could only interpret that as an abandonment, because I don't understand the conditions. Now, who gets abandoned? Somebody who's not wanted. So I developed develop this fixed belief, okay, I'm not lovable, I'm not wanted. Now, you don't need conditions of war and privation and such drama to give children the sense that they're not wanted. In this society, a lot of parents are advised not to pick up the kids when they're crying. That's enough to give the child the sense that they're not wanted and not accepted. and so. I, I was traumatized under very, and this, the trauma is not that my mother gave me to a stranger. The trauma is what I made it mean. the wound inside that I'm not lovable and I'm not unwanted.
4: Dr. Mate, let's go back uh, uh, precisely to um, how you understand and how we should understand uh, the event of trauma. First of all, uh, can trauma arise from a single episode, or is it something that has to, in some form, even if not precisely the same one, be repeated? And to what extent is the fact that you cannot know the trauma— when it actually occurs, account for the fact that its effects endure and, and, and as you say, uh, show up decades later?
2: Well, as your question implies, uh, trauma can uh, be um, induced in people in a number of ways. It could be a single dramatic event, the death of a parent, a tremendous loss in life, um, a terrible explosion. You know, it, it, it occurs that way sometimes. And those are relatively easy to identify and then actually they're easier to deal with. But for a lot of people, it's much more insidious and much more chronic than that. For example, certain child-rearing practices. For decades, the Dr. Spock, who was kind of the guru of parenting, advised parents not to give in to the, the infant's tyranny that infant's resistance to sleep. Now, what he calls the infant's tyranny is the infant's desperate need to be picked up and held by the parent. That's just a trait that we share with all other mammals. You tell a mother baboon not to pick up their baby, or a mother cat not to respond to the child's distress. But here in North America, we've been telling parents for decades to ignore their children's cries. And, uh, or for example, when a child is angry, a two year old is angry, to make, give them a time out, which is to say, to threaten them with the loss of the attachment relationship that they desperately need. Those events are just as traumatic over the long term, but they're harder to identify because they seem so normal, and they don't seem dramatic. But uh, they do show up later on in life in all kinds of dysfunctional patterns.
4: And Dr. Mate, you speak in the book about uh, unresolved traumas. So in Mm -hmm. the examples that you're giving now, or indeed uh, in the case of trauma more generally, if one can speak generally about trauma, what kinds of uh, practices can lead, uh, if at all, to the resolution of a trauma?
2: Well, whether we're speaking about on a social level, which we have to speak or whether on the individual level, which is what it strikes most of us, the first thing that has to happen is a recognition that how are we living or some aspect of our lives is not working for us. And that there's a cause for it, which we can actually uncover by some compassionate inquiry. And very often, there needs to be a wake-up call. Now, COVID could have been a wake-up call for this culture, but I don't think it will have worked that way. It should have, but it didn't because of the nature of this society to transformation, the resistance to social transformation in this culture is so deep that the COVID lessons, I don't think have been learned nor will be applied. On the individual level, very often it's an illness, whether of a depression and anxiety, uh, a psychotic diagnosis, a relationship breakup, or a physical illness, like an autoimmune disease or malignancy. That f- works as the wake-up call. So there's got to be some kind of event that happens that says to us, hmm, this is not working. We need to understand why not. and we need to move past it. And once we get that wake-up call, in whatever form, and one of my intentions in this book is to to help people not get to that dire, dramatic point where some significant illness has to wake them up. But once we get to the point of waking up, then we conduct an inquiry. Okay, what was driving my behaviors? Why was I always driving myself on a job, like as if my life depended on it? Why was I a workaholic, stressing myself? Why was I so hard on my children? What is it that makes me feel so hurt when my partner doesn't pick me up at the airport you know so then we start looking at what happened to our lives and we find the answers in our history and then it's a matter of letting go of those patterns and that takes some kind of work usually therapy or some kind of spiritual work or psychological work some kind of different way of taking care of ourselves usually it takes some inquiry what i call a compassionate inquiry of looking at ourselves with real curiosity, what is causing me to live the way I'm living, and why is it not working for me?
0: Gabermante, you. Your book comes out at an extraordinary time, given your topic, and I know it took you years to write. But now, um, in the pandemic, uh, you have, uh, according to um, uh, the CDC, hospitals reported a 24 percent increase in mental health emergencies for children between the ages of, what, um, five to 11, Um, and the issue of mental health over overall so critical at this point. Uh, You talk a lot also about loneliness. But can you start by talking about this mental health crisis among youth and the escalating suicide?
2: Yes. So, the New York Times, uh, about three weeks ago, as we speak now, had a front-page article in their Sunday edition about a teenager who was on 10 different psychiatric medications. Can you imagine 10 different psychiatric medications? And there's been articles in the New Yorker and the New York Times within the last four or five months about the rising tide of childhood suicides. There is a vast increase in the number of children being diagnosed with ADHD, uh, attention deficit, hyperactive disorder with anxiety, depression, self-cutting, obsessive compulsive behaviors and so on. Now we can make two assumptions either there's some accidental, totally unexplainable rise in childhood pathology that is no specific reason whatsoever for its instigation, Or we can recognize that we live in a toxic culture that by its very nature affects children's development in such unhealthy ways that children are increasingly mentally unbalanced and desperate to the extent that they're cutting themselves and even trying to kill themselves. So we have to look for those conditions, not in the individual mind or brain or personality of the child or youth. We have to look at them into social conditions that drive children in those those directions. And unfortunately, in a public conversation around it, it's all about the pathology and how to treat it. And it's not about the social, cultural causes that are chil- driving children in those desperate directions.
0: So, can you talk about how you view this and how this— Not just this country. The world can heal, especially focusing on youth.
2: Well, we need to begin right at the beginning, and the beginning is actually in the womb. Now, we already know from multiple, multiple studies, not even controversial, that the more stress there is on pregnant women, the greater the impact, even decades later, on the well-being of the infant. So how are we looking after pregnant women? The average physician, I mean, I was trained as a medical doctor, to this day, the average physician, when they're trained in prenatal care, they're not trained to ask about the woman's emotional states. They're not trained to ask about how you're doing, how's your relationship, how's your work stress, what can we do to support you. We we'll only look after the body and we separate the mind from the body. We know that stresses on the woman can already have an impact on the infant. Then there's our birth practices. In North America now, the caesarean section rate is approaching 40%. Now, modern modern obstetrics is miraculous in its capacity to save lives, and it should be applied about 10 to 15% of cases for the benefit of the infant or the mother. But the 40% C-section rate and the mechanization of birth, natural birth, as evolved by nature, was designed to produce a bonding experience for mother and infant, including the release of bonding chemicals that'll bring them together for a lifelong relationship. When we medicalize birth, we interfere with it. We mechanize it. We create fear around it. We're actually interfering with the mother-child bond on which the child's healthy development develops. Then, in the United States, 25% of women have to go back to work within two weeks of giving birth. Now, nature would have that mom be with the child for at least nine months, usually longer if you look at it historically. 25% of women having to go back to work for economic reasons, for lack of social support, amounts to a massive abandonment of infants because that's how the infants experience it. That's the only way they can interpret it. Just the way I interpreted my mother's giving me to a stranger as an abandonment. Then there's the child-rearing practices that I've already mentioned, of not picking up children when they're crying, of parents being so stressed that their stresses are absorbed by the infant, that the parents' economic, racial, social anxieties, relational anxieties, their own unresolved trauma, are absorbed by the infants. Then there's parenting practices that focus on trying to control the child's behavior, without in any way trying to meet the child's needs. The human child is born with certain needs for unconditional loving acceptance, for being held, for the capacity to experience all their emotions with parental support. In this society, those needs are denied over and over and over again. And most of our children spend most of their time away from their parents, so they lose the connection with the parent. Do we wonder then that the child circuits of anxiety and panic in the brain are activated and extra overactivated? These are natural consequences of an unnatural culture.
0: Dr. Gabor Mate, the acclaimed Canadian physician and co-author with his son Daniel of the new book "The Myth of Normal: Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture," more from our interview in a minute. Mistakes Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheik, as we continue with our conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate, the acclaimed Canadian physician and author, talking about his new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture.
4: Dr. Mate, could you elaborate uh, on what you've been talking about now, namely the uh, relationship between uh, individual, the effects of an individual and social trauma? You said in a recent interview, "quote, being left with an emptiness and insatiable craving creates addiction." in the personal sense, and capitalism in the social sense. And both these are taken to be coping mechanisms for the experience of trauma, if you could explain.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, let me give you a, a more simple exa- I, I will answer that question, but let me give you first a simpler example of um, social trauma and illness. So it's been well shown that the more experiences of racism a black, am- black American woman has to endure, the greater her risk for asthma. In other words, the constriction of her airways and the inflammation of her airways are the physiological product of a social malaise. Now who's got the pathology here? Society or the individual? Can we even make a separation between the two? We know that if you look at the markers of aging, various biological markers of aging, they're much more advanced in black people of the same age as their, white, as their Caucasian cohorts simply because of racism, because social stress and trauma translate into the physiology of the individual. You can't separate the mind from the body, and you cannot separate the individual from the environment. In Canada, where I live, an, indiv- an indigenous woman, by the way, indigenous people used to have no autoimmune disease whatsoever prior to colonization. Today, an indigenous woman in Canada has six times the risk risk of rheumatoid arthritis. And the same thing is true in the United States, by the way, that autoimmune disease strikes especially women, and especially women of color, at much higher rates. These reasons have nothing to do with genetics and everything to do with social trauma. Now the emptiness that you referred to uh, in a society that tells you that you're not enough, that you're not good enough, that you don't look good enough, that you don't have enough, that you don't own enough, that you haven't attained enough, creating this sense of emptiness is the fuel that runs the consumer society, where it never is enough. You always have to have more and more. You have to attain more and more, obtain more and more. So basically... It's a highly addictive culture that feeds off people's addiction to drive its profits, and they do so quite deliberately. When it comes to the food industry, for example, you probably remember this book a few years ago, uh, Salt, Sugar, and Fat, where the food companies very deliberately try to identify, using sophisticated neuroscience, the sweet spot, the bliss spot, the... That, that when you have the right combination of salt, sugar, and fat in your junk food, that's what gets people addicted. So that the, the digital companies uh, employ what's called neuromarketing. They try and find what's the best way to excite the circuits in the brain of the customer that gets most addicted in order to get them hooked on their products. What we're looking at here is the mass engineering of addiction. And we're not talking conspiracy theory. This is conspiracy reality. That's how it works. But of course, from the point of view of profit, it works because people are gonna buy junk foods that are gonna kill them or make them ill. But those companies don't care. They They just want, it's not that they're trying to kill you. As I say in one chapter of the book, they just don't care if you die. Because what really matters is profit. So this society runs on people's sense of deficient emptiness where more and more is what they think is needed to fill that hole inside themselves.
0: Doctor Gabramate, one part of the power of the myth of normal, your book is the examples that you use, Uh, Mm. particular people, um, especially women who are sick or chronically ill. Uh, Some of them you name, uh, like V, formerly known Mm. as Eve Ensler. You have a whole section talking about her. And if you can talk about how she fits into this idea of healing from trauma Um, to other people. um, Give us some case studies—
2: Sure, well V uh, in her astonishing book, which I think you've discussed on your program, In the Body of the World, uh, where she describes her near death and then recovery from stage three and four uterine cancer. She asks herself at some point, "Do do I have rape cancer? Because her history was that she was chronically for years sexually and physically and emotionally abused by her father. Now, we know from multiple studies that the more trauma and the more abuse you suffered as a child, the greater the risk for autoimmune disease or malignancy later on. So, for example, uh, young girls sexually abused have a much higher rate of endometriosis, which is a risk factor for uterine cancer. Uh, We also know from a recent study from Harvard that the more symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder a woman has, the greater her risk for ovarian cancer. So when Eve asks, do I have rape cancer? The answer is very much yes. She's got rape cancer. And then she goes through this incredible process of healing, which involved the, the best services, not always delivered in the best way, but certainly astonishing. Achievements of modern medicine that really helped save her lives. But, she, but Eve also underwent a personal transformation where she, what happens is when you're traumatized, and V talks about this, is you get disconnected from your body. You get disconnected from your body because when you're a child being abused by your father, it's too painful to be in your body. So you disconnect. And all of a sudden, V has this <clears throat> massive surgery and she wakes up with all kinds of lymph nodes and organs removed from her body and tubes in and out of her body, but she's back in her body, and she finds this exhilarating. So that that loss of connection to the body is one aspect of trauma. The reconnection that happened in V's case not just because of the medical treatment that she received, but because of the powerful emotional and spiritual support that she received and that she opened herself to, resulted in a complete transformation of her personality and her relationship to herself. The other thing that V has done is, is she became a powerful activist. And that social engagement, which connects her to people and, and, and has given such deep meaning to her life and her activity, that's a powerful healing um, Modality as well, and I talk about that in the book. And and Visa, such a noble and inspiring example of that. And in the book, I give many examples of people who are faced with serious diagnoses, written off by Western medicine, but they have a powerful transformation in their relationship to themselves. They regain that connection to themselves that they lost as a result of trauma, and as a result, their illness takes very surprising. Trajectories sometimes miraculous. And so in the book I talk about women with rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis who are told that you got this disease for the rest of your life and it's just a physical disease, nothing we can do about it. When they realize that both the rheumatoid arthritis and the multiple sclerosis have to do with trauma and stress, for which, by the way, there's all kinds of research evidence completely ignored in medical practice, but when they realize that how they live their lives, that the disease is not an accident, the disease is a manifestation of how they live their lives informed by their unresolved trauma, when they deal with the trauma and they develop a different relationship to themselves, all of a sudden, the disease lightens up for them, as you expect it would once you realize that the mind and body are inseparable. And by the way, I'm not the only one who writes about this. There's been researchers from Harvard and elsewhere who've documented similar cases. The point we're all making is that the mind and body is inseparable, the individual is inseparable from the environment, and so that when you look at the whole person in their whole environment and the whole context, we have powerful modalities of healing available to us that Western medicine, unfortunately, seems unaware of.
4: Dr. Mate, if you could also talk about uh, another uh Aspect, uh, another way in which uh, society might exacerbate uh, individual trauma. You talk in the book. You're critical in the book about this idea that people should simply push through it. This idea of resilience. What are the hmm. effects of that uh, orientation uh, towards? trauma. And if you could link it also with what you've just said about the way in which the medical establishment uh, and Western medicine understands the question of uh, psychic wounds.
2: The average medical student, how the medical system deals with trauma is that it doesn't. The average medical student does not get a single lecture on the relationship between trauma and physical or mental illness, despite the voluminously documented evidence. So, that's, there's this huge gap between our science and what we practice. So, that so many physicians have to figure this out after they leave medical school. They have to figure it on their own because nothing in their training prepared them for it. As a matter of fact, their own training is often so traumatic in itself, and their own traumas are not dealt with that they're just not prepared to deal with the traumas of their patients. It's just a subject that's almost completely ignored across the practice of medicine. Now, in terms of the get over it and resilience aspect, there's a beautiful story or or truth that my friend, uh, Dr. Louis Mel Madrona, who's a Lakota Sioux, background uh, psychiatrist and physician and Luis Mel told me and he's an author as well and he told me that in the Lakota tradition when somebody gets ill the community says thank you your illness represents some dysfunction in our whole community because we're not separate, your body is not separate from your mind and your mind is not separate from the rest of our minds, we co-create each other so your illness represents some dysfunction, some imbalance in our whole community. So your healing is our healing. How can we support you? That's the traditional indigenous way of looking at human beings, which modern science, by the way, is more than amply validated, but which modern medicine still ignores. So now the onus is not just an individual to get over it. It's actually Resilience is seen as a communal uh, endeavor and as a communal attribute. And when you isolate people, atomize them, you make them feel guilty or weak for their illness and tell them to get over their trauma. You're just shaming them more, you're isolating them more, and you're intentioning them more in the traumatic imprint. What people need is community, contact, compassion, safety. That's what allows people to work through their traumas. And unfortunately, that's not readily available.
0: There's this amazing figure out from the National Center for Health Statistics revealing that U.S. life expectancy fell from 79 years old in 2019 to 76 in 2021, the largest two-year decline in almost a century. Um, With advances Mm -hmm. in modern medicine, it's astounding, but maybe not astounding, when you look at the kind of health system we have in this country that increases the disparities um, between those who um, have wealth and those who don't, when you look at, you know, health in a capitalist system. I was wondering if you could comment on that, Dr. Maté.
2: Well, the— Impact of inequality has been studied by uh, Sir Michael Marmot, who is a British epidemiologist and he former head of the World Medical Association, and uh, they talk about a social gradient that that the lower social class you are, the greater the risk to your health, and this has been known for decades. Now the these decline in the U.S. national self, uh, life expectancy, you can look upon it again as sort of mysterious individual pathology, or we can actually look at the social conditions that drive it. And much of that is due to the hollowing out of the American um, industrial heartland due to globalization and the loss of meaning and purpose and meaningful employment in people's lives. This is what have been called in the United States uh, deaths of despair. So so many of these deaths are due to suicide and to drug overdoses and to alcoholism. And suicide and drug overdoses and alcoholism are direct outcomes of a society that deprives people of meaning and belonging, a sense of connection, a sense of value, a sense of purpose. So again, we can look upon these manifestations as individual pathology, which yields no explanation whatsoever, well, we can see them as the outcomes of a toxic culture. Uh, you experience the same thing in the, in the former Soviet Union. When they, with the collapse of the so, uh, former Soviet Union, loss of jobs, loss of employment, loss of meaning and purpose, the, the life expectancy of men plummeted drastically within a few years. Now we're seeing the same phenomenon in the United States.
0: The title of your book, Dr. Gaber Mate, is The Myth of Normal Trauma illness and healing in a toxic culture. So, why don't we end with that question of healing, both individually mm-hmm. and as a society?
2: Yes. So, healing, again, if you look at the word origins, which I often do, comes from a word for wholeness. So, healing actually is a movement towards our wholeness. Now, if trauma is a split from ourselves— for example, a spit from our bodies as in the case of V who had to disconnect from her body to survive her childhood, then healing is that reconnection with ourselves, and that and if trauma is not what the terrible things that happened to us, but trauma is the wound that we sustained and are carrying, that 's a very positive message because it means that that wound can be healed at any time. You see if the trauma is what happened to me now seventy seven years ago that my mother gave me to a stranger, that'll never not have happened. But if the trauma is what I made it mean, the wound that I sustained, that I wasn't a lovable, worthwhile human being, that wound can be healed at any moment in all of us. So the last and longest section of the book explores what we call pathways to healing or pathways to wholeness. That's the meaning of healing. The many different pathways, there's no one-size-fits-for-all. It needs to begin begin with the recognition that how we're living and how we're relating to ourselves and others is not healthy. It may be the norm in this culture, but it's neither healthy or natural, and there are better ways. And the same thing is true for our culture. And the essential first step is what I call being disillusioned. Now, people... Usually think of disillusionment as discouraging and somehow negative. No. Would we rather be illusioned or disillusioned? Would we rather see the world through rose-colored glasses, not seeing what's in front of us? Or would we rather deal with reality the way it is? In the final chapter, I quote James Baldwin, the great, great James Baldwin, who said that not everything that's faced can be healed, but nothing that's not faced can be healed. And we have to just face how it is. We have to begin with that. And then we have to bring in our, 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 our humanity, our activism, our advocacy on a social level and, and look at the problems that we're facing and realize that they're not isolated problems um, restricted to individual pathologies, but a whole social issue that we need to face together.
0: Dr. Gabor Mate, the acclaimed Canadian physician and author who wrote the new book with his son Daniel, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing. In a toxic culture. And that does it for our show. To see all our interviews with Dr. Mate, you can go to democracynow.org. Democracy Now is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Augusta, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Waranoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamarie Studio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Hanny Masoud, and Mary Conlin. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Negera, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis. McCormick. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Shaikh. Thanks so much for joining us.